This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, the Global Disinformation Index, or the GDI, is a British organization that evaluates news outlets' susceptibility to disinformation. The ultimate aim is to persuade online advertisers to blacklist dangerous publications and websites. One such publication, according to GDI's extremely dubious criteria, is Reason Magazine, which is the publication I write for when I'm not doing this job. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. I hear you laughing, Brianna. At least according to GDI's recent report on disinformation, which notes that the organization exists to help, quote, advertisers and the ad tech industry in assessing the reputational and brand risk when advertising with online media outlets and to help them avoid financially supporting disinformation online. The U.S. government evidently values this work. In fact, the State Department subsidizes it. The National Endowment for Democracy, a state-supported nonprofit that has received $330 million in taxpayer dollars, contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the GDI's budget, according to investigation by the Washington Examiner's Gabe Kaminsky. It's an excellent piece. You should check it out. Now, should the State Department spend public money to help a foreign-based organization pressure advertisers to punish U.S. media companies? I think the answer, quite obviously, is no. The First Amendment prohibits the U.S. government from censoring private companies for good reason, and government actors should not seek to evade the First Amendment's protections in order to censor indirectly. The Washington Examiner, which was included as well on GDI's list of risky media outlets, confirmed that it has in fact lost out on revenue due to advertisers heeding GDI's federally subsidized concerns. An internal GDI memo singles out Amazon for purchasing ad space on an Examiner article that allegedly included right-wing misinformation. But GDI evidently considers Reason, again, that's the magazine I write for, even more threatening than the Washington Examiner. Reason is listed among the 10 absolute riskiest online news sources. Sounds kind of badass. <laughs> Alongside the New York Post, Real Clear Politics, The Daily Wire, The Blaze, One America News Network, The Federalist, Newsmax, The American Spectator, and The American Conservative. Uh, almost all of those uh, conservative outlets. Now, I should note that The Hill, which is the news organization that we work for here at Rising, they were also evaluated by GDI, but its overall listing wasn't available available anywhere that I could find in GDI's actual report, so I have no idea what the ultimate assessment was, just that they were not on the 10 worst or 10 best list. How's that for transparency? <laughs> now, Reason's high-risk rating, on the other hand, was chalked up to three factors in the report. Quote, no information regarding authorship attribution, pre-publication fact-checking or post-publication corrections processes, or policies to prevent disinformation in its comment section. So they weren't actually accusing us of having any actual disinformation on the website. And it's not clear precisely what they mean. The organization did not respond to my request for comments clarification. But contrary to what they suggest, uh, the, authors at, uh, the authorship of Reason articles is clearly communicated to readers. Reason writers link to their sources frequently and reliably, and they note uh, corrections whenever appropriate. 
when evaluated by a disinformation tracking organization that uses transparent and objective metrics, my magazine has fared much better. NewsGuard is an, evalu is an evaluator that's co-founded by Gordon Krovitz, a former publisher of the Wall Street Journal. NewsGuard gives Reason a perfect score of 100 out of 100 and does not steer advertisers away. NewsGuard also gives the Washington Examiner a score of 92.5 out of 100. In a recent op-ed for The Examiner, Krovitz explained how NewsGuard's processes differ from the opaque blacklisting system preferred by the Global Disinformation Index. Unlike the ratings of news sites done by the entities cited in the Washington Examiner series, Krovitz writes, NewsGuard ratings are done with full transparency and disclosure using only apolitical criteria. Everything is done by humans, including the ratings by our analysts of all the news and information sites that account for 95% of engagement in the United States and the other countries where we operate. Each site gets a score from 0 to 100 based on nine basic criteria of journalistic practice. Unlike others, we don't rely on artificial intelligence. Only human intelligence can be held accountable to be accurate and apolitical. Publishers can also make changes to address our questions. More than one quarter of the sites we've rated, including many conservative sites, have improved their scores by making additional disclosures or otherwise improving their practices after engaging with our analysts. Now, as NewsGuard's evaluation makes clear, the magazine I write for is not an unsafe website. And if the Global Disinformation Index is pretending otherwise, then this government-funded hall monitor is the one spreading disinformation. It is also worth noting that GDI ranked the 10 lowest risk online news outlets, which include NPR, The Associated Press, The New York Times, ProPublica, Insider, USA Today, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, The Wall Street Journal, and Huff. Huffington Post, now known as HuffPost. Now many of these publications frequently produce journalism that I find admirable, but they are not immune to disinformation. HuffPost, for example, repeatedly suggested that the New York Post's infamous Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian misdirection. If a disinfo tracking organization wants to loudly proclaim in partisan fashion that advertisers should only use mainstream and liberal news sites, OK, it has that right. But advertisers should take note of its obvious biases and methodological issues. And regardless, the US government has no business funding it. So I think we found some stuff to cut in the budget, save a little bit of money. What do you think? Yeah, I the think State Department's <laughs> grant to this disinfo tracker of it's, British origin? It's outrageous. And your, your description of them as a hall monitor is right on point. I mean, legacy media has been crazy with bees in its bonnet for years now as there is increased democratization of other kinds of news media because the internet gave the power to people to start their own magazines, to not need a printing press, to not need all this infrastructure, to not need the go-ahead by people with enormous amounts of capital. And it has created a diffuse media ecosystem with a lot of different kinds of views. Do I agree with all of those views that are out there? Of course not. But have I had cause to read reason articles that are informative and you know bolster the kind of libertarian socialist points, frankly, that I'm making from time to time, or just do straight news reporting? Of course, and it's absolutely ridiculous to try to use financial incentives and bully out advertisers in order to basically make sure that there's still a siloed Mm. You, you know, like uni opinion that exists for people to consume. It's outrageous. Like if I was going to stand on a high horse, saddle up on a high horse, whatever. I don't know how what, where I'm taking this metaphor. <laughs> Not a rider here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and be be the guy on disinfo. I'm an expert on disinformation. Yeah. My expertise is identifying disinformation in other people. I would be 
I would feel like I had to be pretty sure that my yeah. my thing is free of error. And this report I read by this group on on the disinfo in in our publications. Uh, it is very unclear as it's as it's structuring these criteria what they mean. Like they said, authorship attribution. I'm like, so I assume that meant they're saying our articles are not attribute, like don't have authors. Yeah. Like maybe like 10 years ago, we used to run things that had already run in the magazine with a with a byline. They would also get added to the website. It would say reason staff, mm -hmm. but like it was also on the website with the actual. Right. It was just kind of a. It was an old website publishing thing. I'm like, is that what they mean? Then I'm looking more closely, and it's saying, oh, are they saying we don't like hyperlink enough? Like the authorship of things we're citing are not linked enough because we do link all the time. Mm -hmm. It's but you can't tell, and yeah. like you couldn't tell. I couldn't tell what the Hill's ranking was on this thing because and the Hill was ranked, was evaluated, but because it, they, they and they said everything that was evaluated, but they only listed what the ten best and the ten worst were. Was it a paywall, maybe? No, it was in a report. It was in a PDF. I downloaded. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, when you were going through, I mean, at one point you threw up some uh, screen grab, and it was like the evidence of right-wing disinformation. You just you gotta say specifically. Do they give any examples of like this is an article, this is a, a citation that's right wing disinformation? So they they had a me not they had a memo that the Washington Examiner obtained. It was not I think it was an internal memo, so it was not part of the report. I it was see. not meant to be uh, seen. And basically, it was just it was an opinion piece. It was an opinion piece for the Examiner, making a you know conservative argument about the transgender movement. I'm sure you would have disagreed with it. I might very well have disagreed with it. But it was an opinion piece. Yeah. It wasn't like trying to launch, like, this is news and has some kind of agenda. And, and they, they were flagging, oh, look at this Amazon ad that appears in this. This yeah. is something for you to be wary of. Yeah. This is very and, concerning. And the comments as well. They're, that was the other thing. They were mad at reason because we, our comments are very lightly policed. Uh, you know, if it's really bad down there, maybe we delete something. But usually it's kind of a free-for-all. It's part of our ethos, ethos yeah. that you get to have a comment section. Uh, um, where you know it can go off the rails, but that's up to the people participating. So to blame the site for that, I mean, that's kind of a just a contrary philosophical yeah. point of view that they were dinging us for. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's wild. I don't think you're the problem, Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, this sounds outrageous, and I'm glad you reported on it. Great Thank radar. you, Brianna. We'll have more rising for you right after this. What's on your radar, Bacho? Over the past 15 years, the Motley Coalition that makes up the Democratic Party has undergone what one researcher is calling a dramatic demographic change in a new paper published by the Manhattan Institute. Political scientist Zach Goldberg, the academic who first uncovered the Great Awakening, has found a new and growing class divide not just between the Democrats and the Republicans, but within the Democratic Party itself. And it's a divide that maps onto race. Though the white share of the Democratic Party has declined significantly, the attrition has has been mostly from whites without a college degree. The white Americans who remain Democrats are increasingly likely to be college educated, while non-white Democrats remain mostly non-college educated. This new class divide within the Democratic coalition marries white elites with working class people of color, quote, exacerbating socioeconomic inequalities within the coalition, as Goldberg put it. 
quote, those with a college education tend to be wealthier and have higher socioeconomic status than those without, but they also tend to be more socially liberal and more likely to prioritize post-material moral concerns over kitchen table issues, writes Goldberg. And because education and wealth correlate with political power, the Democratic Party will likely become a majority-minority party relatively soon, but one that is still largely and disproportionately steered by liberal college-educated whites, writes Goldberg. We've already seen where the over-credentialed elite has navigated what was once the party of labor, radically astray from the priorities of the working class. Consider the defund the police movement, so popular among the denizens of gated communities and liberal enclaves with pri private security, yet so unpopular with black Americans, less than 20% of whom supported the movement. Or consider the kind of people who list climate change as a major threat and extremely important issue, for which there exists a 30 point gap separating Democrats overall from black Democrats specifically. Or consider last month's finding from the Pew Research Center. Pew found a huge difference between white and black Democrats on the question of transgender identity. When it comes to gender, fully 72% of white Democrats believe that whether a person is a man or a woman is a matter of subjective identity, compared to just 33% of black Democrats. 66% of black Democrats, like 60% of Americans overall, believe that whether a person is a man or a woman is decided by the sex he or she is assigned at birth. In other words, two-thirds of Black Americans totally reject the very concept of transgenderism. Perhaps even more surprising is that this number has risen significantly by 11% since 2017, Pew found. When it comes to issues of gender and identity, Black Americans, like Americans more generally, are getting more conservative, although not importantly on questions like gay marriage, for which everybody is getting more and more accepting. Of course, you wouldn't know this from the kinds of proposals you hear from the party that purports to represent black voters. And if you wanna know why, consider that in addition to the racial divide separating black and white Democrats over the trans issue, there is also a class divide. Pew found that among college educated Democrats, 72% said, quote, a greater acceptance of transgender people is good for society compared to just 45% with a high school diploma or less. This divide is the only endgame in a party in which a racial divide is mapped onto a class divide, but it's not just on cultural issues or questions of identity. You can see the two-tiered nature of the New Democratic Party and the way the party has flipped its position on immigration. Once the Democrats viewed limiting immigration as a huge priority because it was seen correctly as crucial to protecting working class jobs and wages. As recently as 2015, Bernie Sanders was scoffing at the suggestion of open borders as a, quote, Koch brothers proposal, though by 2020, he was committing to decriminalizing illegal border crossing. But even by 2015, Sanders's position was a nostalgic throwback to a time when the Democratic Party was truly the party of labor. National unions themselves underwent this change on immigration, reflective of a larger shift towards a college-educated leadership that has been alienating rank-and-file members, presaging the development in the Democratic Party more broadly. Meanwhile, Black Americans remain deeply skeptical about unfettered immigration. Black Americans are more supportive of limiting immigration than any other bloc of the Democratic coalition, the sociologist Musa Al-Garbi reported. And Hispanics actually tend to be more concerned about illegal immigration than are whites or Blacks. 
The support Black and Hispanic Americans have for securing the border puts the lie to the slander that it's white supremacy that makes Americans worried about mass immigration, a slander that white over-credentialed Democrats created to smear Republicans, safe from the pinch of competition from laborers without an education from other countries. Meanwhile, they sentence their own voters to pay the price for their vanity morals. Expect much more of this. In his State of the Union address, President Biden made an impassioned plea to blue-collar voters that Democrats are still the party of labor. With an emphasis on reshoring manufacturing and fighting fentanyl, he sounded a lot like President Trump. Yet skeptics heard only hot air. And you can understand why the next day, when James Carville, the famous Democratic consultant and strategist, called the Republicans white trash for their vocal opposition to the president. Take a look at this. Well, uh, you know, I told people I have a clue a PhD in white trashology, and you saw real white trash on display. Mm. And let me say something about Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She dresses like white trash. She really needs a fashion consultant. Can I recommend George Santos? He, he could do a good job of, of dressing up where she doesn't announce her white trash them by her, her own well, clothes. Well, I'll tell you, James. This sounds like it's about a political divide, but it's not. It's about the disgust that credentialed elites have for the working class. And make no mistake about it, it's coming home to roost in their own party. Zach Goldberg, the academic who first uncovered the Great Awakening and wrote this great paper from the Manhattan Institute, now joins us to weigh in. Zach, welcome to Rising. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So y your work was so crucial to my book. I could not have written my book without your amazing, amazing work. Tell us about what made you first do the research that uncovered the Great Awakening. And then I also want you to talk a little bit about the role that the media has played, because your your, your work focuses on that and it's extremely important. Yeah. Um, and that actually will, I guess, bring us to how I study this topic about educational polarization. Um, and how that's remaking uh, the two parties. Uh, essentially, my, I guess, interest or my uh, foray into the Great Awakening uh, occurred as a result of wanting to understand Trump voters, just like all other political scientists in the wake of the 2016 election. Uh, you know, it was probably one of the more unconventional presidential candidates in history. And, uh, you know, we could save all the isms, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> Everybody was really wondering, you know, what is really driving all these people to vote for Trump? And I was looking to compare, you know, the attitudes of Trump voters with Romney voters uh, and, you know, and past um, voters of Republican presidents. And when I actually looked at the data, uh, especially, uh, you, know, um, you know, attitudes towards Muslims, attitudes towards just everything. And when I looked at the, and I compared attitudes across these uh, different GOP voters, I noticed that, you know what, there's not that big of a difference between a Trump voter in 2016 and a Romney voter in 2012. Um, in some ways, they're actually a little bit more moderate on some issues, on economic issues. Um, anyways, I was expecting to see a massive gulf between the racism of the 2016 Trump voters and the Romney voters, and I didn't really see much, but what I did see was a really, an, unprecedented growth in the liberal direction among, uh, you know, Democratic voters, you know, between Hillary voters in 2016 and the Obama voters of 2012. And I wanted to see, you know, okay, this is pretty unprecedented. You know, when do these changes really begin? And this is kind of what brought me 
to really look at hundreds and hundreds of different, uh, you know, measures of attitudes across time to really trace when this big shift in democratic public opinion or liberal, white liberal public opinion, especially uh, had occurred. Um, and from what I could see in the data, uh, especially on race, that it, it occurred around uh, 2013, 2014, which incidentally is the uh, marks or coincides with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the rise of social media and a lot of a rise of a lot of trends, including trends in mental uh, health, <laughs> which you know maybe we won't have time to talk about today, but is definitely uh, you know over it's overlapping with that you know the Great Awakening. You know, um, it, it's funny though because we're assured all the time by the media, we, I'll hear claims that, oh, the Democratic Party has stayed right where it is ideologically, and the Republican Party just keeps moving further and further and further right. And you're saying your research shows the opposite. Yeah, and it's not, not just my research. If you look at most issues, uh, uh, you, you'll, you'll find maybe an issue or two where the Republicans, you know, the uh, uh, you know Republican base, uh, you know, has moved to the right. But by and large, let's say in uh, you know 85 to 90 percent of all issues, especially social issues, it's been the Democrats having lurching to the left, uh, and even Republican voters have also kind of moved in a liberal direction, just not as quickly as those on the left. So it kind of looks like <laughs> if you were to just ignore the movement of those to the left, it looks like you know, those on the right are really very regressive in a lot of these issues. It just they haven't moved as quickly into the same at the same clip as those in the left. So, um, yeah, that's why it appears uh, as any like I said, you could find some issues maybe that they've moved to the right. But uh, by and large on immigration, especially which they're tied to being you know more radical or really they haven't moved in decades. <laughs> they have the same position. It just what happens that you had politicians like Trump that are kind of playing to this already pre-existing sentiment that's always existed. It hasn't really changed much among uh, rank-and-file, um, you know, conservatives. But uh, so, now so, you have so Zach, t talk us through how the media has played a role in creating um, the misapprehension that Robbie just pointed out. Like, what is the role the media has played, both in fomenting the Great Awakening and also in t trying to convince us that it's Republicans who have become more extreme when it's actually the left that has? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, my, my dissertation work has looked at, uh, you know, the trends in the frequency at which the media is covering certain topics, uh, such as racism, such as white supremacy, um, such as uh, uh, privilege, you know, all the buzzwords. Uh, you know, these are terms uh, that really were only very sparingly used back, let's say, as recently, even as like 20 years ago. Uh, so, uh, and in around 2000, like I said, around 2012, during that period, let's say the, the first years, the early years of the second Obama term, you see this, um, massive spike in, uh, interest in, in, uh, not interest in the amount of, uh, uh, in the frequency that the media is using terms like racist. And I think a part of that, and I don't mention this explicitly in my dissertation, but I think a part of that is the Tea Party, the rise of the Tea Party, was construed in uh, a lot of liberal circles as being, uh, I guess, racially motivated. Um, 
And maybe there is, the, you know, such racial motivations maybe were present. You know, they were an element among the wider Tea Party. But the Tea Party is a very large, diverse group. And I think that there was, um, you know, a desire to kind of reduce it all to just racism. You know, all opposition to Obama. Just, And I think that's why you saw those initial rises in interest in racism and white supremacy in 2012 or so. And then after that, you had the... Black Lives Matter, uh, the, you know, in 2013, the Trayvon Martin, uh, that case, uh, and you start to see um, not only not only a change in the, you know, the media mentions of racist, but also change in the framing of certain topics, uh, you know, like systemic racism, institutional racism. These are academic terms that you know have been around since the 1970s. And we really, you know, they've been very rarely used, seldom used in the media. But during this period, you start to see a very rapid rise, a steady rise in the extent that these issues are, are being viewed or, um, you know, in terms of systemic racism, for instance. That's not something, you know, a frame that the media has used uh, very much until recently. Um, so, uh, well, Zach, we're, we're going to have to leave it at that. We're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us and for your incredibly important work. Keep it up. Take heart. I mean, it's just I cannot stress this enough. Your work is so crucial. Thank you so much for doing it and for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Hope to be back. There'll be more rising right after this. Stay with us. What's on your radar today? Well, Robbie, a decade ago, corporate lobbyists convinced the federal agency that handles rail safety to exclude hazardous compounds from its more stringent safety requirements. And last week, a 150-car train carrying flammable toxic chemicals derailed in Palestine, Ohio, creating a toxic air event that spit a plume of noxious gas 3,000 feet in the air. There's a clear connection between these events, but according to Media Matters, only 3% of coverage about the Ohio rail disaster discussed the rail industry's hand in the crisis. Major cable networks aired nearly three hours of coverage across 92 segments, according to Media Matters, with Fox News and MSNBC accounting for nearly 34% of coverage. And yet these journalists apparently had little curiosity about why incidents like these happen. Lucky for you, I'm a more curious type of gal. As The Lever has reported, a series of train derailments beginning about 10 years ago made people want to strengthen safety regulations. But Americans who were concerned about the dozens of deaths that accrued from these accidents were no match for railroad industry lobbyists. Norfolk Southern, the corporation behind the Ohio train derailment, ignored warnings that understaffing was exacerbating safety risks, at the same time that it paid millions to executives and spent billions on stock buybacks. They even shot down their own shareholders, who attempted to push through an initiative that could have required executives to assess, review, and mitigate risks of hazardous material transportation. Specifically, after a 2012 derailment in New Jersey that involved the same toxic chemical at issue in Ohio, the Obama administration proposed new safety regulations, but once again, corporate power won out, and the regulations that went into effect were narrowly tailored to focused on crude oil, excluding the types of chemicals involved in both the 2012 crash and the one in East Palestine. Cut forward to 2017, and the rail industry lobbyists managed to successfully get Senate Republicans to rescind part of a rule designed to improve braking systems. 
You see, regulators had wanted rail cars that carried hazardous, flammable materials to use an electric braking system that can stop trains faster than the typical air brakes. But Norfolk Southern's lobbying group argued that doing so would, quote, impose tremendous costs without providing offsetting safety benefits. Hmm. One former senior official at the Federal Railroad Administration told the lever that the electronic brake system really would have made all the difference. Quote, would ECP brakes have reduced the severity of this accident? Yes, said Stephen Dittmeyer. But rail companies don't want to spend the money. The Federal Railroad Administration estimated the brake requirement will cost about half a billion dollars. The 2017 profits, by the way, were over $10.5 billion. But hey, I guess the $6 million they spent on GOP donations in 2017 was a cheaper bet than making our railways safer. Now that Biden's off the hook, he hasn't tried to reinstate the break rule, despite being in office for two years with House and Senate majorities. And at what cost? Five tank cars that derailed contained vinyl chloride, which vaporizes into phosgene when burned. Now, this is the same chemical that killed thousands of soldiers during the First World War. After the accident on February 3rd, thousands of residents on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border were ordered to evacuate. The scene was so cinematic, it was oddly evocative of a 2022 Don DeLillo adaptation, White Noise, in which a toxic air event in the Midwest forces the film's central family to evacuate. Even more eerie, the film was shot in East Palestine. And at least one of the men that had to evacuate was actually an extra in the movie. About 20 of the 150 rail cars were carrying hazardous toxins that are known carcinogens. And the EPA has reported that they are known to have been and continue to be released into the air, earth, and surface water. The EPA screened the air inside of 290 homes as of February 13th and said it didn't, had not found vinyl chloride or hydrogen chloride, which can both cause life-threatening respiratory problems. But thousands of fish and frogs were found dead in creeks around Columbiana County, up to 7.5 miles away. While evacuated residents were told it was safe to go home just days after the incident, some are skeptical, remembering that after 9-11, EPA head Christine Todd Whitman told New Yorkers that the air was safe, putting first responders in particular at risk. More than 37,000 exposed at ground zero since became sick, many with cancer or chronic respiratory disease. More than 1,100 have died. Meanwhile, a local reporter attempting to cover the crash was arrested last week after police claimed he interrupted the governor at a press conference about the crash. Get this. <laughs> what happened was that because the press conference was delayed, it started at the same time the reporter, Evan Lambert, was scheduled to do a live shot. And because the live shot was allegedly disruptive to the press conference, he was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and criminal trespassing. Big win for press freedom. Let's take a look at this arrest. Stop resisting! Stop this! Stop! For the record, his colleague at News Nation, Mike Vicara, who joined us here on Rising yesterday to discuss the derailment, told the New York Times that the live shot was conducted quietly and away from the podium where the governor was set to speak. He also clarified that Lambert wrapped his live shot as soon as he realized the governor was speaking because he also wanted to hear what public officials had to say. No matter, apparently, we live in a country where we throw reporters in jail at the slightest provocation and ask questions later. Now, Biden also has abandoned labor here. With the jailing of reporters and the success of corporate lobbying efforts, it's easy to forget that this is also fundamentally a labor story. 
Just two months ago, Joe Biden stepped in to stop a rail strike that rail workers hoped might bring them a single solitary sick day. Over the same time period during which the railroad industry was fighting safety measures, they were also slashing their workforce by nearly 30 percent and embracing a scheduling strategy known as precision scheduled railroading. Now, if you remember from our rail strike coverage, the scheduling strategy makes it very difficult for rail workers to be able to take any, any time off, but it also leads to an increase in accidents. Workers are sick, they're tired, and trains that are nearly two miles long are being staffed and checked for issues by just two rail workers. The train that crashed had a three-man crew, an engineer, a conductor, and a conductor trainee. Cuts to staff and tight timing means cutbacks on car inspections, which may have led to the axle failure and need to rely on emergency brakes in Ohio. Again, not the new and efficient electric brakes, but the old air brake system. Thanks. Again, lobbyists. While the new brake system activates on all the cars at once, the problem with the old brake system is that it operates kind of like a slinky sequentially down the line, and it causes the train to jackknife and derail when the brakes are activated suddenly. Candace Wagner, a freight rail conductor, member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen Union based in Pittsburgh, and 2022 Socialist Workers Party candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, said, quote, the rail bosses, backed by the federal government, refused to address any safety or other substantive issues raised by rail workers through our unions in the recent negotiations. And their lust for profits, the railroad bosses are running increasingly long, heavy trains and pushing on rail workers, smaller crews, arbitrary schedules, longer shifts and more work than ever before. Massive cuts have been made in the operating crafts, car inspectors, mechanical and maintenance of, way, of workforces. All this leads to derailments like this. Honestly, what else is there to say? Look, stuff like this happens every day. Corporations like Norfolk Rail routinely externalize the risks of operating their dangerous businesses, from which they profit in the billions, onto the public. If they were ever made to pay for the messes they cause, maybe they'd invest in safety. Maybe it would be cheaper just to pay their workers and make sure that they were well-rested and able to do their jobs. They drive trains slower and jump at the opportunity to install safer brakes. But these companies almost never have to pay, at least as not, not as much as they actually owe. Courts routinely limit judgments decided by juries, and sometimes companies liquidate, get sold off, and then the new ownership simply claims the old company doesn't exist anymore, so they're not liable. No one is, even though they hold all of the assets and profits of the former company. After Texaco come Chevron was sued for dumping 18.5 billion gallons of toxic water in the Amazon, one of the world's greatest natural disasters. Lawyer Stephen Donziger helped lead a successful lawsuit against the company, securing $18 billion in damages. But Chevron has never paid a dime. It has spent $400 million in legal fees per year to fight the judgment, however. They also successfully got Donziger locked up on house arrest for 900 days, the longest misdemeanor charge ever recorded. And you want to guess how much they've spent cleaning up the rainforest? Well, just one-tenth of one year's legal fees. As long as it costs less for companies to have accidents and hurt the public than it does for them to invest in safety measures, they will continue to externalize the costs onto the vulnerable public. This is why it is in the public's interest for them to have to pay for the damages they cause. History shows that they tend to get away with murder, sometimes literally. 
The New Jersey crash from 2012, well, 23,000 gallons of vinyl chloride were released, but Conrail settled with affected town, town members for between $500 and $2,500 in exchange for an agreement not to sue. Details of the settlement were sealed by the courts. It was a working class community that was affected, just like in Ohio. And some local lawyers observed that the process of securing individual settlements was exploitative. I sincerely hope that no health issues emerge later in life for the people who sign their rights away. But if they do, we know it won't be enough. 23,000 gallons of vinyl chloride were spilled in the 2012 crash. That's a little under 200,000 pounds. Nearly 1 million pounds were on the East Palestine train. Low levels of the compound have already been found in the Ohio River, which feeds into the Mississippi, America's second largest river. How much will be enough to make the affected whole? How many are ultimately going to be affected? How will the affected ever be able to prove that this bill caused their cancer? How likely is it that Norfolk Southern will be liable? Who will pay the legal bills for all the affected low-income people involved? How much will it take to make corporations pick up the costs of their dangerous business practices? So many Americans saw the movie Aaron Brockovich so many years ago, and, and from that and other films and maybe personal experience, understand how difficult it is in the legal context to prove causation. And that is pre precisely why so many companies that deal with toxic materials are able to get away with causing great untold harms. Because at the end of the day, the legal system, for reasons, you know, not, not illegitimate reasons, really want to make sure that people aren't on the hook for things that they didn't do. At the same time, the nature of toxic exposure, the fact that it happens, the results of it are seen so many years later, the fact that we're all exposed to so many things, it's very hard to pin any one incident to any one outcome. And what that, that means at the end of the day is that corporations are off the hook and they have no incentive to ever really curb their dangerous behavior. Well, especially if uh, liability is artificially lowered by some kind of legal Statu uh, standard or statute. Um, I, I was very influenced by hearing a, a, a talk from a law professor I really like years ago about the um, the Deepwater Horizon mm -hmm. oil spill, where he said, like, well, why do they do this very risky, very dangerous drilling here? It's like, well, they're they're legally prohibited from doing it in many other places, and here their liability is capped. Mm -hmm. So you you essentially incentivize risky behavior yeah. if you if you do that. So something, I don't know enough about the specific situation, yeah. but something similar might be going on here. Also, I mean, rail is a very um, croniest kind mm -hmm. of, I, I think this railroad is, is a duopoly, essentially, mm -hmm. for the services it uh, provides. So yeah, there's a lot uh, to scrutinize here from, uh, from many perspectives, I think. Yeah, what's interesting, people should definitely go to the lever and read the entirety of the reporting that was over there. But one of the things that I didn't include in the radar was that the rail company at one point was one of the biggest advocates for adopting the new electric brake system. And they were kind of touting that, oh, we are the innovators here, you should use our rail, this is a great system. But for whatever reason, maybe they realized the cost of implementation just weren't worth it. They pivoted hard and spent so much money, and there's details about which congressmen take, took the most money from the railroad company, and of course, they're the ones that are leading the charge against implement, implementing these kind of safety regulations. It's, it's a, a disaster that everyone could have seen coming from a mile away. And so many rail workers sounded the alarm. And it was part of the negotiations that were happening with the strike uh, discourse at the end of last year. 
And now we're reaping um, the, the, not the benefits, but we're, we're living with the consequences of inaction. And I think Biden and Buttigieg are facing some real legitimate criticism um, for not doing more. I'm about halfway through that White Noise movie. I remember reading, I read the book in college. It mm -hmm. was actually assigned to me in a literature class. I didn't really care for the book. I don't <laughs> think I'm really caring for the movie. Uh, although, isn't the... I'm, I'm not sure. I, I mostly remember the book. Is the lesson we're supposed to take away, and the connection is crazy. It was filmed yes. there, near there, and yes. there are people who are in the movie experiencing it's the same thing. Wild. Sounds like, actually sounds like the kind of satire that the book itself is trying to capture. <laughs> yeah. I think it's ultimately right about people's irrational fears of death or something, because in the book it's not actually a, a harmful incident, but it makes them... Crazy. Oh, right? I, I always saw the movie. I didn't. I haven't read the book. I don't know. Um, the book and the movie, it seemed like it was legitimately toxic, but it was, it was treated. But they're toxic people anyway, or something. I don't know. I didn't care for the movie. I don't know that I got the movie to be honest. Right. I watched it for Adam Driver reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll definitely have to keep following the story because yes. the stuff isn't going anywhere. More rising right after this. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, last week, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh published an article providing evidence for the proposition that America was responsible for blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines last September. And the mainstream media has done everything it can to ignore this story even exists. As background, the pipeline connected Russia's natural gas resources to the rest of Europe via Germany, bypassing Ukraine, making it an important resource for the health of Russia's economy. German and Finnish taxpayers spent $11 billion to fund the pipeline, and Europeans stood to benefit from access to Russia's gas reserves. And yet, when the pipeline was destroyed last year, the most prominent mainstream theory was that Russia was responsible. To many, this rationale was confusing. The rationale for why Russia would sabotage its own ability to sell its resources to a lucrative market was never convincingly articulated. In the weeks following the explosion, the New York Times' Melissa Eddy asked, was it the Russians trying to rattle the West, the Americans trying to sever a Russian economic artery, or possibly the Ukrainians trying to take revenge on Russia? But while, per Eddie's op-ed, the motives for America and Ukraine are fairly straightforward, the Russian angle rattling the West is plainly lacking by comparison. At the Washington Post, Javier Blas acknowledged suspicions that Joe Biden was responsible, writing that although, quote, on social media, many quickly pointed out that U.S. President Joe Biden had promised to bring an end to the pipeline, conspiracy theorists always see the hand of the CIA in everything. He went on to write that said conspiracy theory was nonsense. Quote, the clear beneficiary of shutting down the Nord Stream pipelines for good is Russian President Vladimir Putin. How's that? Well, Blas's loosely articulated argument was that disconnecting Europe from Russian gas lines would, and in fact did, cause energy prices to soar in Europe. And Russia would happily cut off its nose to apparently spite its face. <laughs> but Germany stopped final or, or authorization on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline once Russia invaded Ukraine in February of last year, long before Nord Stream 2 was sabotaged. And when Germany froze construction on Nord Stream 2, the Kremlin responded by saying it hoped that that pause was temporary. Like Germany, it stood to benefit financially from its gas contracts with Europe. 
And those contracts were arguably more crucial, more crucial following the economic sanctions the U.S. and Europe imposed on Russia following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Moreover, the group of seven industrialized nations, or G7, announced a price cap on Russian oil a month before the pipeline sabotage, with the intention of putting a strain on Russia's treasury. If the West understood it could punish Russia by making it more difficult for it to export energy, why would Russia also make it more difficult for itself to export energy. And if the G7 recognized it could place pressure on Russia by dampening its oil uh, uh, exports, doesn't Occam's razor point to a G7-aligned group as responsible for the pipeline explosion? By the end of last year, even mainstream outlets, including the Washington Post, were coming around to the obvious that there was no evidence Russia was behind the attack. But even the Post coverage opines that, despite a lack of evidence, Russia could still be responsible, citing, quote, its recent history of bombing civilian infrastructure in Ukraine and propensity for unconventional warfare. It's not such a leap, argued the piece, to think that the Kremlin would attack Nord Stream, perhaps to undermine NATO resolve and peel off allies that depend on Russian energy sources, officials said. But while the journalists at the Post don't see a leap, it's at very least a bit of a stretch in my view. Let's review what we knew even before Cy Hirsch's article. The U.S. Navy had recently been observed doing underwater exercises in the Baltic near the pipeline. Moreover, the U.S.'s interest in fighting the Ukraine proxy war to, quote, weaken Russia is quite obviously different from Germany's interests. As we've covered, Germany relied heavily on Russia for energy, a fact which had caused tension between the U.S. and Germany long before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian gas contracts had supplied Germany with 60% of its gas, mostly via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was set to double that amount. As Hirsch points out, President Biden and his foreign policy team, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and Victoria Nuland, the Undersecretary of State for Policy, have been vocal and consistent in their hostility to the two pipelines. Now, I know this clip has been played to death, but you know what's coming. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Not only did Biden say that, but 20 days prior, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, said the same thing at a State Department briefing. Quote, I want to be very clear to you today, if Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Okay, so... Let's say we have some motive, a tacit admission, and no evidence still that Russia was involved. Now, let's get into what's new from Cy Hirsch. Here's a clip of an interview he gave on Democracy Now! yesterday. Here's what Biden did, and this is what I think the ultimate point of the story, and why so many people, even the intelligence community, are very troubled by it. What he did is he said, I'm in a big war with Ukraine. It's not looking good. Uh, I want to be sure I get German and West, West European support, and I know winter's coming, and if it's gonna be bad, 
I don't want the Germans to say we got to check out because we're going we're getting massacred. We'll be massacred with no 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 cheap fuel, and um, our, our economy will go bonkers. We're going to check out and we're going to open up the gas line, which they could do. So he took away that option. Now contrast how cogent that narrative narrative is with the Washington Post narrative from before. Okay, about how Russia was responsible for this. Now, based on information from an anonymous source, Hirsch reported that last June, quote, Navy divers operating under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise known as Baltops 22 planted the remotely triggered explosives that three months later destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines. The source, according to Hirsch, has direct knowledge of the operational planning. Hirsch explains that the divers involved were trained at a Panama City technical diving facility, an important detail because unlike divers that are members of America's Special Operations Command, operations by these Panama divers didn't need to be reported to Congress or House and Senate leadership. Hirsch's report stressed this secrecy. Quote, this is not kitty stuff, said a source. If the attack were to be traced to the U.S., it would be a, quote, act of war. This is why, according to Hirsch's source, those involved in planning the attack were dismayed by Biden and Victoria Nuland's statements that all but admitted they had a scheme to stop Nord Stream 2. It was like putting an atomic bomb on the ground in Tokyo and telling the Japanese that we are going to detonate it, said the source. The plan was for the options to be executed post-invasion and not advertised publicly. Biden simply didn't get it or ignored it according to the source again. But the upside was that Biden's loose lips meant that the CIA could claim the plan was no longer a covert mission. Once it was downgraded to simply highly classified, there was, quote, no longer a legal requirement to report the operation to Congress, according to the source again. Hersh's source went on to detail a plan for the U.S. to approach the target via Norway. He explained that Norway worked well for several reasons. One was a Norwegian antipathy toward Russia, Another was that Norway had a navy full of excellent sailors and divers with deep-sea oil and gas exploration experience. Norway also may have been somewhat self-interested. Blowing up Nord Stream meant that its own natural gas became more valuable in the European market. The plan was to place the explosives in June because, for the past 21 years, during that month, the American Sixth Fleet has sponsored a NATO exercise in the Baltic Sea, providing perfect cover. But according to Hirsch's source, at the last minute, the Biden asked whether the bombs could be activated remotely to create more distance between the NATO exercises and the actual event, presumably to muster up more plausible deniability for U.S. involvement. Now, this was a technically complicated setup, which I encourage you to read about in Hirsch's piece. Again, I cannot attest to the veracity of Hirsch's reporting or, of course, his source. But to the extent that some people think that detail gives the impression of Truthiness, there's a ton there, and you can judge for yourself. Now, at the end of his piece, Hirsch points out that the American press treated the Nord Stream sabotage as a mystery and labeled Russia as the only likely culprit without establishing any motive beyond vengeance. And here's an interesting detail. Months after the bombing, Hirsch writes that it emerged that Russian authorities had been quietly getting estimates for the cost to repair the pipelines. Not exactly what you would expect from someone who just, you know, blew up the pipelines. But the mainstream U.S. press, on the whole, declined to point fingers at the CIA, even as U.S. officials publicly took a victory lap. 
Listen to Antony Blinken at a September 30th press conference describing the Nord Stream explosion as a tremendous strategic opportunity. Ultimately, um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the years to come. Hirsch also includes in his report a quote from Victoria Nuland testifying at a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing in late January. She told Ted Cruz, quote, like you, I am, and I think the administration is, very gratified to know that the Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. So, look, there's the evidence. Do with it what you like. But let's be clear. There is still, months after the Nord Stream sabotage, no coherent story for why or how Russia carried out this attack. On the other hand, for the U.S., we have motive, uh, albeit anonymous source, providing details and some pretty weird pseudo-emissions from our own political leaders. Now, as some have noted, Hirsch does have some history of almost falling for forged documents claiming that JFK bought Marilyn Monroe's silence about their alleged affair. And there have been other moments where dubious information has been leaked to him and perhaps too credulously reported. On the other hand, in lieu of counter-arguments, Hirsch has also been openly smeared by establishment journalists, as Aaron Maté points out here in this tweet, and as Glenn Greenwald also points out here. Now, you'll decide on your own what you make of the story, but given the mainstream media's silence on Hirsch's report, it's important that you know what's been alleged, what's been buried, and start to ask questions as to why. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of the situation and, and how people should be thinking about what happened um, with Nord Stream. You know, I, I, as I've said, as we've talked about this, I know that Cy Hirsch is a great journalist. He has done tremendous work. And I, I think that particularly given the comments made by Biden, by Newland, uh, you're, you're right, the, the, the motive element is there. And then Cy Hirsch was filling in some of the details for how it would be technically possible. Uh, it's plausible, and it, it is not out of character given what the U.S. has done in the past in terms of covert interventions, assassinations, et cetera. So you can't, you can't say, oh, this is beyond the pale. We would mm -hmm. never do this. You're just not paying attention to American history. But all, all that said, I need more. I need documents, or I need to know who the source is, or I, need, I, I would like to know that other parties vetted the source, et cetera. I, so I was just reading um, a really interesting piece. Uh, I'll send it to you after this from Ian Bremmer. Uh, who's a political scientist, um, who, who was pushing back on some of what Hirsch is saying in his reporting. Mm. He says you can publicly track, and he's pointing to people on Twitter who are doing this, and it's a little bit, I think, beyond both our abilities to comprehend, but the, it, Hirsch claimed that a Norwegian um, a, a craft was used to facilitate this, and they're pointing to the tracker saying that all of the, all the, the crafts we're talking about were not in that area yeah. at the time. Now, Bremer doesn't, Bremer actually thinks it was not, he, he thinks it was the, he thinks it was the Ukrainians. He, he does not find the case for, against yeah. Russia persuasive. Uh, and what he's saying, and in this piece, which I think is really interesting for G0, he's saying that uh, he, he would not have thought the Ukraine's technically capable of this until recently, but they blew up that bridge, they did it, a, 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 they, they assassinated that Russian figure. 
They've done a couple things that we know are them that are much more technically impressive than you would have thought. And so he thinks that raises the likelihood of it being Ukraine, perhaps with Poland's assistance. Mm. So I, I think that's, you know, I think it's important to keep all that in mind. We really don't know for sure. And anyone making, you know, strong characterizations at this point should really, is probably has some agenda to push. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that the evidence of pushback or media blackout is dispositive. Yeah. But I do think the fact that there was such a coordinated push among the mainstream kind of corporate outlets that historically are so quick to pick up, you know, State Department lines that are fed to them and that they were all pointing the finger at Russia is suspicious in and of itself. Well, and in the wake of Russiagate, this is all going right. to be so suspect. But also they could have pointed their fingers. Yeah. If the point was to, um, you know, defend America or exclude America from consideration, and if the, uh, if the point was actually the truth, then they could have pointed fingers right. in a lot of other directions that were much more plausible. But it is really remarkable to me that all these months after the case, no one's really come up with a motive for Russia doing this other than it just wants to throw a monkey wrench They're in crazy. things. crazy. Wilds, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we'll have more rising for you right after this. Actress Roseanne Barr is out of hiding following the cancellation of her sitcom Roseanne back in 2018. Her show came crashing down hours after Barr posted a allegedly racist tweet about Valerie Jarrett, an African-American woman who was a senior advisor to Obama, President Obama. The tweet said that if the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby, it equals VJ, Valerie Jarrett. Barr later apologized. This week, she participated in a Fox Nation comedy special and had this to say. Man, I had a rough couple of years there. Uh, I got fired because basically I racially uh, misgendered somebody I thought was a white woman. <laughs> huh? I know, I thought the was white, it's true. Well, it's uh, kind of a return to stand up after many years. And uh, they offered me, uh, you know, to come and do a stand-up special, and uh, it, it was in response to being, you know, fired, and they came to my defense, and I was like, well, I thought about it, and uh, I was like, yeah, I need to have my say. I need yes. to answer, because, you know, I was kind of not allowed to even apologize for what happened. I, I was just like blackballed and, uh, you know, uh, just, just totally canceled from um, even commenting on what happened. So I thought, well, you know, stand-up is a great place to come back and um, say what happened and tell the truth about it, and also to talk about cancel culture itself and how horrible it is and how fascist. And it, jokes are a great, great way to, uh, you know, scorn power, especially during Biden's presidency. I, I love laughing it to scorn because it, it deserves to be laughed to scorn. Oh, I and and my jokes are so great. They're the most offensive. I was talking to my friends who also were canceled and we all were saying we made a pact together. When we come back, we're going to be even more offensive than we've ever been before. 
In the oh, yeah. So it's worth noting, noting for one that she did apologize at the time. She said, "I deeply regret my comments from late last night on Twitter. Above all, I want to apologize to Valerie Jarrett as well as to ABC and the cast and crew of the Roseanne Show. I'm sorry for making a thoughtless joke that does not reflect my values. I love all people, and I am very sorry. Today, my words caused hundreds of hardworking people to lose their jobs, meaning the Roseanne reboot, reboot show. I also sincerely apologize." Uh, to the audience that has embraced my work for decades. I apologize from the bottom of my heart. So it seems like the bottom of her heart has changed or that this was a coerced uh, apology. Well, well, I mean, no, she, I, mean she, I don't think she, I, I think her, I think she's apologetic and thinks it was still pretty horrible what, what they, that she lost everything over there. Look, I never found Roseanne's comment. It was not for me. I didn't, was not a fan of the show. I was not a fan of the reboot. Um, I, I, most of my life, I thought her political views were pretty kooky. I, in fact, I, I still think that. But you know what? I was, I was kind of, I, I felt bad for her uh, when that all happened. I, I believe her that she says she didn't know that Valerie Jarrett was right, a black woman. Not, I totally believe wait her. Wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Either you were sorry or you, you can think that you ways. shouldn't have had. No, no. Either. So first of all, the joke whether or not Valerie Jarrett, even if Valerie Jarrett was white, what is the joke that she looks like Planet of the Apes in the Muslim Brotherhood? What does that mean? I mean, it's a it's an offensive joke. I don't think it's particularly funny, so but me, it's mocking it's, it's, a. Her being, her she's being, mocking a. You can't mock a political official. Of course you can, but the question is whether or not a show. Is it funny to say a network, Donald minute, Trump looks like a tangerine? The question is whether or not the sh uh, a network wants to continue to invest in your t self-titled show reboot if you have alienated a significant per per percentage of the possible audience? That's the question. Now, again, this was not a state cancellation. I think that this is nowhere near the kinds of the relevance of something like the Twitter files and, and the kind of state pressure on social media companies to endorse or not endorse certain kinds of behavior or political thing. Now, I actually don't, like I actually am sympathetic with the fact that she was kind of at the peak of cancel culture, if you want yeah. to call it that. And, and I think that today, her. her show would not have been canceled, frankly, for saying the same thing or tweeting the they same thing. You're right, it's not a government that. pressure issue. They can do ABC or whoever, it's ABC is the company. I, they can do whatever they want. I, I think it was really cruel and unnecessarily harsh to disappear her from public life well, over wait a-, a they canceled her show. Yeah. NBC didn't lock her up in a gulag. She, to the extent that she chose not to come back into public life, she didn't. She come wasn't back even into really. Life. I think she's correct that she wasn't given much of an opportunity to to publicly express her. Like I remember all the the coverage at the time. So I remember actually I participated in a in a forum about this as it was happening for I think for NPR. I'd have to for some mainstream outlet and and the, the the information that she didn't know that Valerie Jarrett was a black woman was not like was not something the media was circulating until well, well I remember after, it vividly. I, I remember that being her response vividly. And I also remember wondering you know to me Obviously, there's an element of the fence that is you th you're calling a black woman Planet of the Apes and doing the thing that so many people have done, which is dehumanize black people by making saying that they are they look like and are like and are worth as much as animals, apes specifically. However, that is only like a fraction of the actual joke in the offense. I mean, we're talking about a time at which Barack Obama has just kind of fairly narrowly won. Um, or at least narrowly won the uh, primary, in part because of all of the 
accusations, including by Hillary Clinton, that, oh, maybe he is a secret Muslim. Donald Trump is basically starting his political career over birtherism accusations. And she's saying that he is, that his senior advisor looks like, whatever that means, looks like a Muslim brotherhood had a baby with we get, that, with well, we a grant, of the We eighth. grant um, some ability for comedians yeah. to be provoc social license to be provoc just like um, all any number of, of liberal comedians with their own nightly shows saying Donald Trump is literally in bed he's gay with Vladimir Putin yeah, and, look, and those are jokes and nobody loses their show for well no that's it. absolutely not true what is that what's her face uh, the redheaded comedian was literally taken off TV lost her entire career Kathy Griffin was yeah, abandoned I, by all of her colleagues for making a joke about holding up, you know, a fake yeah, head. I wrote Donald about Trump. how that was bad. I can point you to the so article saying the, I wish the, they hadn't done that. This I, is the concern, this perception that there is like something called cancel culture that skews only in one direction, I think is really ill placed. The reality is that I don't all think of these, it skews only in one direction. Okay, great, then we're in agreement. The problem is that there are all of these financial these financial actors that are making decisions for better or for worse, some of it which I agree with and some of which I don't about the perceived effect of various behavior on their audiences. And look, the, the Roseanne reboot was a big deal. I was a big, I, you know, I, I, I am a big fan of the original Roseanne. I don't know that I actually caught any episodes of the reboot. It wasn't up for very long. But I remember being very excited about the reboot. Roseanne has been a much needed voice that uh, expresses a kind of working class politics and attitude to the American life and experience in American life that even to date hasn't really been reflected very much on mainstream TV. Increasingly, you have these shows, Yellowstone, et cetera. But especially at the time, she was incredibly novel, the original run of her show. And so a lot of us are really looking forward to it. I remember being frustrated at the time because I wanted the show to go on. I thought that maybe the show could go on even without Roseanne. I didn't see the need to cancel the show altogether. But I, I, I struggle with the idea that she is, I mean, she's doing what a lot of people have done, which is just try to, I think, ride the wave of having been canceled to be your entire new brand. And my concern is that I, when I looked at some of the jokes that she was telling, like the old Roseanne was really funny and had a lot of really good social commentary. The new Roseanne, I mean, there was this bit where she's, you know, she does the, my pronouns are, are F and U or whatever. Yeah, it, and it's like everyone has told fresh. that joke. Yeah. And it's like, well, Roseanne, I, I hope that your whole personality going forward isn't being canceled because I think, frankly, you have more to offer the world. Yeah. So just to be clear, here's what I wrote about Kathy Griffin's canceling. I said, if you take up a pitchfork here, you look foolish the next time you complain about political correctness run amok or easily offended millennials or safe spaces. You are, in fact, a snowflake. So, so yeah. I was not on board with that either. I think that was actually pretty cruel. I think what Roseanne went through, I, I'm sorry, I think it was real, it was savage on the network's part. And, and in order to continue, they did try to continue the show without here, right? It became the O'Connor. They did. It was the O'Connors or the Connor, whatever their last name is. They absolutely continued with, and that was almost worse of all. It's like you, st it was, it's her thing. It was named after her. I mean, I'm sure they had the corporate right to do it, but I didn't, I thought the entire thing was ugly and bad and I felt I felt very sorry for her and I say that as someone who's never found her particularly funny except for this fantastic joke she told um, that I, I will like Google, look for it online I saved it because it, it was like in a tweet and it got deleted it is to my mind the funniest joke ever told I have it saved on my phone I just listened to it are you going to tell it to us I, or I, I don't think we can do I don't, we probably don't have the rights to show it it has expletives in it so it's uh, it's uh, um, it, it, it's a joke about Donald Trump and it is the funniest joke there is. All right, well, Roseanne, if you're watching, more of that.
see what happens. We'll have more rising right after this. Good morning, welcome to Rising. We have a spectacular show for you today. Brianna and I were both early today in the studio when we got here. Yes. That never happens. It never happens. We had to was, fight for the makeup chair. I was determined to beat you this morning, Robbie. <laughs> you pulled in a sneak move and, and you, uh, you got in there first. All right, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, the Biden administration is taking hits from all sides over what critics say has been an outright negligent response to the environmental disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. Secretary of Trans Transportation Pete Buttigieg claimed on Twitter that he lacks the authority to implement regulatory measures aimed at preventing derailments like the one in East Palestine. However, according to reporting from our friends at The Lever, this is nothing more than a straw man excuse. Rail law and regulatory experts interviewed by The Lever agreed that Buttigieg's transportation department can and should allow for a reinstatement of regulations, including the replacement of old Breaking systems. Meanwhile, over on the right, personalities like Tucker Carlson and T Tulsi Gabbard, who was arguably uh, politically undefined, did not hold back on Fox News last night. You're completely incompetent, completely incompetent. There's never been a cabinet secretary this flamboyantly incompetent and this so obviously uncaring, almost to the point of evil, if we're being honest about it. It's no wonder that these people don't trust these, our leaders. These people are in positions of great power and leadership to do exactly what these people need them to do, to show up, to be there, to provide them with exactly what they need during this massive catastrophe. But guess what? They're not there and they're not paying attention to them because they don't care. They see themselves as masters. They see the rest of us as adversaries and subjects. Uh, they, you know, the American people are basically an afterthought. They're very happy to take our taxpayer dollars, very happy to spend them as they please, spend trillions on military adventures around the world, leaving people like those in Palestine, Ohio, those in Jackson, Mississippi, who don't have access to clean drinking water, leaving my fellow veterans to struggle and beg and plead for pennies. Hmm. Yeah, it's been a really interesting dynamic. Uh, watching some of the Tucker Carlson clips in particular, you know, I, I was joking to you before we started filming today, it feels like the end of libertarianism. Because hmm. they're all kind of begging and clamoring, why hasn't the government done more? Why haven't these regulations been into, in effect? And they're completely right. But what I see missing from their analysis, even in Tulsi's analysis right there, it's why haven't they been able to fix the pipes in Jackson, Mississippi? Is there potentially a funding issue? Who is withholding the funding? What is the political party, in the case of Jackson, that is withholding the funding? And you know, why is it that, that that political party, both political parties, frankly, but in the case of Jackson, that political party, um, more beholden to the interest of, let's say, the uh, the water company that they gave this big break to that precipitated the crisis in, in Jackson, Mississippi? Why are they more beholden to the indi rail industry groups that lobbied to have those regulations stripped in the first place? Um, why is money, you know, the, the money and politics piece of it is absent from the analysis, and instead we get this real focus on the individuals involved, which I don't have a problem with. Everyone knows that Pete Buttigieg is not hardly my favorite, but it's always going to be someone else. It's not the fact of Pete Buttigieg, it's the fact of being in that position and being a politician who takes corporate money and who's part of a two-party duopoly. And until their analysis gets there, it just feels a little bit like point scoring to me as opposed to a substantive uh, investment and in what the people of this community are going through. I don't think libertarianism says that you're, you're allowed to poison people, poison their water, make them sick, 
um, do all sorts of things and, and suffer no consequence for it. And, and f libertarianism is all about property rights. If you're if you're if you're making my home unlivable because you've made the air because you recklessly caused an explosion or whatever it is, no, you're supposed to pay you're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to pay compensation for that. And there's all sorts of ways the legal system has limited how people have to pay, how organizations and companies That's have true, to pay compensation. I don't think Robbie, it's a I've heard you argue, blow to libertarianism. I've heard, heard you argue, for instance, against the existence of the FDA, mm -hmm. arguing that private companies could regulate food as well or better than the government. And in this situation, what we're seeing is— These are is, two different things, though, the regulation and the liability. Right. I'm talking about the regulation. Right. And that's what Tucker Carlson in, in, is talking about in this clip. So Tucker Carlson, all of them over on Fox News are talking about why haven't Buttigieg and Biden required these higher quality breaks that I talked about in my radar yesterday? Why haven't Buttigieg and Biden required that toxic uh, toxic chemicals, um, sorry, the kind of chemicals that were being carried on the train be part of the regulations uh, uh, labeled as hazardous materials that would have required lower speeds and other kinds of safety Regulations. Why didn't that happen? My argument is because we know, this isn't conjecture, that rail industry groups lobbied for those regulations not to be in place. And the problem is, there is a problem with government, but is that it's bound up in this corporatocracy. If your argument as a, as a libertarian, broadly speaking, is that we need to have fewer regulations, that we shouldn't have government, that we should let private industry do what it wants, well, then you're in a situation where exactly this happens. And so now your you're argument strawmanning is— this concept. The whole thing is government—I right? mean, the, 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 the government owns the, the tracks, right? They, have, they, they acquire people's land to build them in the first place. I mean, that's, like a, that's a violation of libertarianism in the first place. Well, I, I'm talking about the— the Norfolk Southern Railroad. Yeah. That's who lobbied to get rid of these regulations. And in a world without the government, they would be not only able to do exactly what they've done, but maybe even more. In a world without not the government, they wouldn't even exist. I'm sorry? They wouldn't even exist. The private rail company wouldn't exist, but for the government? The, 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 the government has to, has to force, force people out of their homes to lay down the tracks I, I, in the I'm first not place. entirely sure what the argument is here, sir, Robbie. My point is that I, I Eminent domain is how those things were I built. I understand that you're, you're, you're saying that if people legally were able to be held responsible, then maybe the private industry would see it as, as financially advantageous to and follow And who line. limits their liability? It's but the government. The, no, that's not true. It's corporations who have worked overtime to limit the law's ability to actually hold them accountable. <laughs> who actually does that? It's the they're, legislators. It's the government. Exactly, because they're, they're, they're correct. That's the problem. Me. So I think I've, I've said this a couple of times, so I don't think I need to re keep repeating it. But fundamentally, instead of talking about the cor corruption of the government, you have these figures over on Fox News talking about the fact that Pete Buttigieg is just a bad person. And as though, although I might agree with that in principle, at the end of the day, Pete Buttigieg is just going to replace by another person with an R or a D or an I next to their name, and unless we fundamentally— I mean, he has presided over a unique Unless number of— the of the structural issues, it's just going to keep happening. Sure. But he, he's having a uniquely disastrous term as transportation secretary, I would say, which is maybe not surprising because he has no experience in this field and no— Maybe. But it wasn't Pete Buttigieg that— got rid of those regulations. I mean, but, honestly, it was the Obama administration that was responsible, and it was the Trump administration that was responsible for different aspects of the rulemaking that led to this crisis. So this is not a partisan issue. And my concern is, again, that over on Fox News, there seems to be an uh, investment in point scoring. I was very clear on my radar yesterday that this is a bipartisan tragedy. And if you're more focused on scoring points, I am really concerned that the people in East Palestine aren't actually going to get the kind of comprehensive reforms that would prevent something like this from happening. Yeah, I, I suspect it is an interest in point scoring. Yeah, I yeah. agree with yeah. you on that.
that. Well, Americans living in East Palestine, Ohio, and its surrounding towns continue to raise red flags weeks after fires burned thousands of pounds of spilled chemicals, sending toxic fumes into the atmosphere. Dozens of residents packed into a high school gym in East Palestine yesterday, uh, where, according to CNN, local leaders took questions from emotional residents who expressed distrust of officials' accounts. And there was a noticeable odor in the air. And that is one of the complaints that people brought to the meeting last night. They want to know if the air is, is safe to breathe, why are people getting sick? They're cowards. Norfolk Southern a no-show Wednesday night, citing concerns for employee safety, but pledging to stay in East Palestine to fix it. Hundreds of people turned out in what was supposed to be an open house format, where people could go up to booths and individually direct questions to the EPA and elected leaders. That's not what we came for. We came for a town meeting. East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway said he thought the open house style would be safer, but changed it back to a town hall style midway through. He tried his best to keep it orderly as people shouted out questions. My greatest concern is that my citizens feel safe. But many left the meeting without feeling any safer. If the air is so clean and the water is safe, why is everybody having all these symptoms? My eyes were burning, my head was pounding, my chest was hurting, my throat was hurting, I couldn't quit coughing. Yeah, reports of there being a chemical smell in the air. I saw Jordan Cheriton over Reports at, of dead animals. Yeah, I saw Jordan Cheriton over at Status Coup interviewing a man who raises foxes in the area who said one of his foxes immediately died. Uh, he took the rest of the vet. Some were experiencing neurological issues. Others are just visibly sick. Um, they're showing, they're testing with elevated levels of, you know, liver activity and other kinds of things that are very concerning, especially now we're talking about mammals and not kind of... But the EPA and, says everything's safe. There's nothing to worry about. I mean, shouldn't, isn't this a, a challenge to liberal acceptance of government expertise and Absolutely. authority. Liberals shouldn't accept government expertise. But we're supposed to I default don't. to the, the science, whatever the scientists, whatever they say. And whoever says that's a moron, but it's yeah. nothing that I think the left, the left no, no, position. No, I know, I know that's not what you say. The left position has always been that there's so much corruption and cronyism in these organizations that we need to get money out of politics. Like all of these things root, root from the same kinds of issues. Moreover, the EPA will say has been defunded Something that, again, that T Tucker Carlson even, this is stuff that's being talked about on Fox News now. Why doesn't the EPA have the resources for this? Even people on Fox News are saying the problem here in part is the routine defunding of these kinds of organizations. So that is part of it. Part of it is that they are saying, they are making more limited claims. Like, we tested these houses for these chemicals and this air quality, and that that is, mm -hmm. we're not finding the presence of those things, right? But just because you're not testing, you're not finding vinyl chloride in this house doesn't mean that there aren't toxic elements in the water, that there are other chemicals that they shouldn't be testing for, et cetera. And I think this is a part of an issue where the lack of kind of science literacy can be exploited by organizations to give the perception that something is safe when in fact it is not. I mean, the, the APA has become a something a lot of conservatives don't like, I think for good reason, because its main goal is to thwart buildings from being development, uh, buildings from being built, various projects from going on, is to like stand in the way of people getting homes and progress, et cetera. And that, that might be, but in this moment, when there's a tragedy like the one that's unfolding, I think a lot of people really wish there were an organization full of neutral scientists that weren't being paid by corporations who could be trusted to make the kind of assessments about health and safety that the people are really relying on. And moreover, 
I think a lot of people would really appreciate, particularly in a working class town like this, the resources to not have to wait around and see what happens, but to actually be relocated somewhere else, to have, um, you know, to be able to pay for hotel rooms or have new housing, get their kids in new schools, have public transportation to get them where they need to go. Because people are, are really stuck. They have animals that need to be taken care of. Many people didn't want to evacuate because they, they have responsibilities. They can't just leave their, their livestock. Um, and I think that a lot of emergency protocols don't really appreciate that everyone's life isn't living in a studio apartment in, yeah. in New York City or Washington, D.C. Nobody so, wants to evacuate their home. I mean, yeah. if, it's, if it's, I mean, if there's a rampaging fire coming your way, you go. But if it's unclear, I mean, this is, you can't see the harms of this. There are the alleged harms, right? It's in the air. It's in the water. Yeah. You don't know. It's the uncertainty. So, I mean, if it were me and I'm a person with means, I would obviously leave. Mm -hmm. But the, the horrible truth is that for so many people, that's just not an option. So what do we do then? And should we be also talking about having more robust supports for people to get out of Dodge? It's a relatively small town. Like, are we saying as a country, when there is potentially one of the biggest you know, chemical disasters of the last mm -hmm. few decades at least, we can't even take care of our own people in this way in the richest country in the history of the world. And by the way, as a consequence of, of negligence by a railroad company that itself earns over $10 billion they, a year in profit. They, they should pay for all of it. It's not a challenge to libertarianism to say a company that caused this calamity should pay for all of the associated cost with it. That's you do something wrong, you pay for it. That's yeah, core to my ideology. As we, as we see so often, it just rarely, rarely happens. We saw this with Stephen Donziger in um, Ecuador. Uh, we see it in, in corporate law case after corporate law case. They're very, very good at avoiding liability. So we can agree on what should happen, but we'll have to stay tuned to see what actually does happen. I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. Twitter CEO Elon Musk says cancel culture is over as a result of his takeover of Twitter, tweeting, rip cancel culture, you won't be missed. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the culture war front, the CEO of Anti-Woke Inc. has his eyes on the presidency, according to new reporting from Politico. Biotech founder and rising political star Vivek Ramaswamy has gained attention for his disdain for identity politics and virtue signaling on the left. Welcome, Vivek. It's good to see you guys. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. So obviously, this was some big news in Politico that you're planning to run for president. Uh, you're not someone currently in political office, and you're not someone, I think, with huge rec name recognition outside of conservative media. But I'm very interested to have you talk to us about why you decided to run for president and you know what you're hoping to do in terms of talking about solutions to the problems I know you speak a lot about in terms of identity politics, uh, wokeness, ESG, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm strongly considering a run. I've been actually very transparent about that. I expect to make a decision in the relative near term. But to me, this is less a question about the who, okay? I think we obsess over that sometimes too much. It's a question about the what and the why. What agenda do we stand for and why do we stand for it? And I say this as a first-generation American myself, I have criticized this woke infection in every sphere of our lives. I've written a couple of books. I've fought against the ESG cancer, including through the market over the last year by starting a new firm. But I've, I've really concluded that the real problem is upstream. Our generation, our nation, is so hungry for a cause. We're hungry for purpose and meaning and identity. At a moment in our national history when the things that used to fill that void, 
like faith or patriotism or even hard work have disappeared. And I think that's an opportunity for the conservative movement to fill that void with something so meaningful that it dilutes this woke culture to irrelevance. Why do we see the rise of transgenderism or climatism or COVIDism? It's because it fills that vacuum of identity at the heart of the American soul. And that's actually how you solve this, not by playing whack-a-mole one at a time, not just by criticizing the other side, though it is important to see the problem with clear eyes, but to fill that vacuum with a sense of American purpose and identity that is so meaningful that it can dilute the poison to irrelevance. And to the extent I'm considering doing this, that would be why I'd be on this mission. Vivek, help me understand why you see wokeism as the core issue here, or at least a core symptom of what you've described as a, as a, as a central issue, which is a lack of emphasis uh, on hard work or some of these other qualities. You know, when I look around the country, what I hear a lot, um, what I think I heard a lot in the context of the Bernie campaign, which obviously galvanized a lot of people, was that they're working very, very hard, but the returns on their work are not what they were 20, 30, 50 years ago, that the piece of the pie that workers get for their labor is smaller at the same time that corporations and extractive companies like hedge funds and venture capital have taken more and more of their paycheck at the same time that their dollar goes less and less far paying for things like food and health care and education. And you see in even Republican strongholds like in Florida, they voted in 2020 to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which to me is an evidence of a country that says, I don't like to work hard, is evidence of a country and, and Americans who are saying, we're not getting paid the value of their work. So what do you say to people who are focused on those kind of core economic concerns and frustrated that both Republicans and Democrats do, I think, in many times, at many points, like to focus on identity, Republicans talking about wokeism, Democrats putting rainbow flags on missiles, et cetera, instead of actually delivering economically for the American people? Well, I want to make an observation. I think you actually made some pretty good points there. The old left, the pre-2008 left, used to be concerned about economic injustice and even issues like poverty and economic mobility. And unfortunately, what happened in the back of the 2008 financial crisis is after the bailouts, and I'm very critical of the Republican administration, I was critical at the time, I'm critical today, that effectuated those bailouts, the Bush administration. On the back of those bailouts, I think you have a lot of people on the left and even some on the right who said, if that's just crony capitalism, that's a broken system where bankers made a lot of money when times were good, now they get bailed out by the public fisc when times get bad, then we need to at least redistribute money from those wealthy corporate fat cats to poor people. But what happened was the rise of this woke movement actually allowed the corporations in this country to deflect accountability by marrying this new woke left that preaches about climatism and racism and misogyny and bigotry. So I view that as an artificial debate. So in many ways, I actually agree with what you said. Now, I don't think that my focus on the woke infection is a focus on identitarianism because I wanna get rid of identitarianism so that we can go back to actually debating the real issues of how we can prosper and move forward as a country. But in order to do that, we have to take on and dismantle these toxic ideologies that now are getting ossified in the next generation of Americans, teaching them it, that your identity is the color of your skin, not the content of your character. So that's what moves me. You know, is taking on those ideologies, and I, so I've been critical of a lot of the same things you're critical of and you're talking about. I think the difficulty becomes, you know, what is the solution, especially for Republicans who I think rightly so in the past, you know, are, are, are critical of government involvement, et cetera, but, but now are saying, well, the decisions being made by companies like Disney and Netflix, et cetera, we don't like them, but how do we, you know, how do we, you said purge this toxic ideology. Does that take 
you know, government involvement in a way that then, well, what, you know, the Republican Party is violating all of its prior notions on this, on, on, on what, what government power's relationship to private industry should be? Great question. So I think that there's a lot of nuance here. I've said the Republican Party needs to stop reciting slogans they memorized back in 1980 and wake up to the real threats to liberty and prosperity today. One of the policies I've advocated for, for example, is making political expression a civil right in this country. I don't care if you're on the left or the right. You should not have to choose between putting food on the dinner table and speaking your mind freely. America is the quintessential nation where you get to enjoy both of those things at once. Getting rid of race-based affirmative action programs, not just in college admissions, but in other spheres of life. Now, what are one of the counter arguments you hear? Well, you hear legacy admissions, right? If, you, if your parents or grandparents went to Harvard, you have a better chance of getting in. I'd say get rid of those too. So that's a valid counter argument that actually Republicans need to get off their high horse and wake up to the fact that if we wanna apply meritocracy, let's actually have a meritocracy in this country. That's something that I happen to favor. I say, you know what? More people like my parents who came to this country through the front door legally, raised a family, had two kids who went on to start companies that helped thousands of people. Great, we should want more immigrants like them. Be open about that. But that means unapologetically securing the border and saying that people whose first act of entering this country is a law-breaking one should not be able to come to this country full stop. So I think that there is room for actually looking at a lot of solutions here. I think one of the big problems in the next generation of Americans is the rise of addictive social media. I think if you can't smoke an addictive cigarette by the age of 18, I don't think you should be able to use an addictive social media product by the age of 15 or 16 either. And that's not a partisan point. So my main they, message is we need to wake up to the unique challenges of today. It is not 1980 anymore. As Abraham Lincoln said, the dogmas of a quiet past, as I often quote, are inadequate to the stormy present. Let's wake up to the present and address those problems. I'm right there with you. Vic, you said, you've said a lot there um, to get back into. One, I'm curious, one, I'm curious whether or not you don't, whether you don't see the First Amendment as protecting the kinds of political speech that you would like to have a specific bill or constitutional amendment, it's not, it's not clear to me um, yeah. I'll be to clear protect. But also, uh, so a couple of other points, if I could just get in there. Uh, you would want to ban social media. Are there other kind of addictive behaviors that you would like to ban? Would you ban marijuana? Would you ban uh, cigarettes? Would you ban fast food? Would you ban soda? Because um, I think there are some very libertarian-minded people in our audience that would be really skeptical of some of those policies. Yep. And lastly, you have referenced a couple of times climatism and genderism. And I want to uh, clarify, I believe you're a biology major at Harvard. Do you you know, I understand that biology is, biology is not climate science, but do you not believe in global warming? Do you think that a transition to clean technologies is or is not a problem? Um, you want to, uh, uh, you know, get rid of some of what you've described as wokeism, but I wonder what you have to say to people like my family who are not recent immigrants, but who, you know, all of my aunts and uncles on my father's side graduated from segregated schools, um, are, were not born with civil rights in this country, are very new in our ability to access the American dream that your parents were able to access when they first immigrated to this country. And what do you say to folks that see and your attack on wokeism, an attack on the very um, uh, civil rights legacy that enabled your parents to have rights when they came to this country? A lot of great questions embedded in there. Let me hit as many of them as I can, starting with the last one. I actually think the Republican Party should be the party that embraces not just the identity of being the party of Lincoln, as it was, but even the party of MLK's message, that you get ahead in this country, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character. And one of the things that bothers me is this new wave of anti-black racism that we are seeing in America, 
And I think there's no better way to cause racism against a racial group than by creating structures that create the perception, and in some cases the reality, of losing your seat in college or your job or your chance at a promotion because of the color of your skin. So it's not just anti-white and anti-Asian racism that bothers me, but also bluntly condescension that that creates and animus that that creates towards black and Hispanic colleagues in the workplace or classmates in school. The, 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 now, let me, people are concerned let me, about- Yes, a lot of questions, but okay. yeah, I can address the others too, if you'd like. I can quickly address the others and then and we can go wherever you'd sure. like. You, so many great questions there. Climate, let me just be really clear. I, I've actually been clear in other forms too. Look, I think that temperatures are likely going up. They're likely going up due to man-made causes. However, the actual best way to protect against the effects of climate change isn't through abandoning fossil fuels. It is through more fossil fuel usage. That's a blunt reality where you look at the number of people who die of climate-related disasters today. For every 100 that died in 1920, two die today. That's a 98% reduction. And that's driven by advances powered by fossil fuels. And so I think that, yes, you got to see the facts with clear eyes, but you can't approach them with the religious zealotry that causes you to only adopt one set of behaviors that actually are even self-defeating. For example, the hostility towards nuclear energy in the climate movement, or even the, the fact that they're fine with shifting production to places like China and Russia where methane leakage is far worse and methane is work, worse for global warming than carbon dioxide actually reveals that this agenda isn't about the climate. It's about a religious zealotry that's grounded in this vision of equity. And then the last question you asked was, I used to call myself a libertarian. And so, uh, you know, I think I still have a lot of libertarian instincts still left in me. What's going on there with big tech censorship? Shouldn't companies actually still be allowed to decide what does and doesn't show up on their websites, for example? Well, you know what? I don't call it big tech censorship anymore. I call it what it is, government tech censorship. Because what we see today is the government is using these companies. It's pressuring them through threats, giving them special inducements like Section 230C2, among others, to do through the back door what government could not do through the front door under the Constitution. And I say that if it is state action in disguise, then the Constitution still applies. These companies ought to be bound by the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States if they're working hand in glove with the government, protected by the government, to do what the government could not do directly. And you're right, these are complex issues. And so I'm not here to recite some sort of Friedmanite slogans that I'm trying to retrofit the present reality into. To the contrary, part of the reason to the extent I did do this, you know, a presidential run or otherwise, is waking up to the fact that these new realities demand new dogmas, demand new principles. And that's a big part of what I'd like to be a part of, of shaping the dialogue. Uh, there's a, a lot more we'd like to get into with you, Vivek. So maybe we'll have you back. Uh, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.